Gresham College presents Leadership and Change by Ministers in the Post-War World, Winston Churchill, by Vernon Bogdanor, FBA, CBE, Gresham Professor of Law. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't imagine that anybody here needs reminding that tonight's speaker is the Professor of Government at the University of Oxford and a Gresham Professor of Law. Professor Bogdanor is, without any doubt, one of the most eminent, I would say almost certainly the most eminent, of constitutional historians today. He has written various books of seminal importance on subjects around his central theme. He has also achieved the very difficult feat of becoming a celebrity without forfeiting the respect and admiration of his peers. And every political journalist worth his salt knows that if they can get hold of Vernon, and consult him about any matter remotely relating to the Constitution, he will get a comment which will be cogent, witty, well-argued, and probably controversial. Professor Bogdanor has every weapon in the academic armory, except one. He has never mastered the art of being blandly platitudinous. He is capable of almost everything, but he has one conspicuous failure. He has never discovered how to be dull. His subject tonight is the post-war Churchill, in particular his last government. I confess that until I heard the subject of a lecture, I had not realised that Professor Bogdanor was a Churchillian scholar, let alone that he had aspirations to write a political study of Churchill himself. I look forward with enormous interest, I know you do, to hearing what he has to say on the subject, and I'm confident that, as with his journalistic comments, it will be cogent and witty and well-argued and probably provocative. Well. for that uh, excessively uh, generous introduction, uh, Philip. Uh, it makes me uh, wish my parents were here to listen to what you said because uh, my father would have admired it and my mother would have believed it. Um, oh, uh, Churchill, um, Churchill's peacetime ministry. Uh, those who came into contact with Churchill, uh, even when they had very considerable disagreements with him, all thought he was a very remarkable man. For example, uh, Lord Allenbrook in his diaries, and Lord Allenbrook had many disagreements with him in the war, said he is quite the most wonderful man I've ever met, and it's a source of never-ending interest studying him and getting to realise that occasionally such human beings make their appearance on this earth human beings who stand out head and shoulders above all others. And one of his recent biographers, uh, the late Roy Jenkins, 
So that when he began his life of Churchill, which I think is the best single-volume study, he said, I thought that Gladstone was by a narrow margin the greater man, certainly the more remarkable specimen of humanity. In the course of writing this book, he said, I have changed my mind. I now put Churchill, with all his idiosyncrasies, his indulgences, his occasional childishness, but also his genius, his tenacity, and his persistent ability, right or wrong, successful or unsuccessful, to be larger than life, as the greatest human being ever to occupy 10 Downing Street. But Churchill is in many ways difficult, uh, 50 years after his last ministry ended, difficult for us to understand because he appears in many ways so remote from us in time, in some ways more remote than other prime ministers. And certainly the rhetorical style of his speeches and his writings is very remote from us. Let me, for example, quote what he said when he first became Prime Minister in 1940. He said, as I went to bed at about 3 a.m., I was conscious of a profound sense of relief. At last, I had the authority to give directions over the whole scene. I felt as if I was walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and this trial. Now, one can't, I think, imagine any contemporary prime minister writing like, like that in his memoirs, and perhaps much um, uh, more sympathetic to our current rather deflating era are the comments made by Attlee, who supplanted him as prime minister in 1945, when Churchill, as he put it, instead of getting the order of the garter, got the order of the boot and was defeated in the general election by Attlee. And Attlee wrote this... As the day wore on, country results confirmed our victory, and by the middle of the afternoon it was clear that we had won a great victory. Lord Portal, who was chairman of the Great Western Railway, gave the family tea at Paddington, and presently I was told by the Prime Minister that he was resigning. A summons to the palace followed. My wife drove me there and waited outside for me. The King gave me his commission to form a government. He always used to say that I looked very surprised, as indeed I was, at the extent of our success. We went to a victory rally at Westminster Central Hall, where I announced that I had been charged with the task of forming a government, looked in at a Fabian Society gathering, and then returned to Stanmore after an exciting day. <laughs> now, Churchill is unique amongst post-war prime ministers, because he's the only prime minister whose post-war career was an epilogue to his main achievement. His reputation was already secure before he became Prime Minister for the second time in 1951, because it seemed that during the 1930s, he almost alone had been right about Hitler when everyone else had been wrong, and he had saved his country in 1940. He could not on his own defeat Hitler, but by ensuring that Britain was not defeated, he could ensure that Nazi Germany did not win the war. And in 1940, Churchill told Anthony Eden, his successor, and already his likely successor at that time, that he would not make Lloyd George's mistake by staying on after the war, but would retire when the war came to an end. And no doubt the history of post-war Britain would have been very different if he had stuck to that resolution. Because the fundamental question that needs to be asked 
is whether Churchill had anything positive to contribute after 1945. Was his peacetime premiership a mere anticlimax to his great achievements during the war? Now, Churchill became Prime Minister for the second time in 1951, and he came to that peacetime premiership with a greater length of experience than any Prime Minister in the 20th century. Most Prime Ministers have been in the Commons for around 20 or 30 years before entering Downing Street. Churchill had been an MP for over 50 years, with one short break. He'd first entered Parliament in 1900. He'd first entered the Cabinet in 1908, over 40 years before becoming Prime Minister for the second time. Now, it's said that our political views are generally formed in our early years and that we do not change our basic assumptions radically once we reach maturity. And therefore, I think, to look at Churchill's political views, we have to go back to Churchill's youth, which we must remember was spent in Victorian times. He was born in 1874 in Victorian times, long before his peacetime premiership. And the first and most obvious belief that Churchill grew up with was that Britain was a great power and perhaps the leading power in the world, that what Britain did mattered. Indeed, in general, Britain led and other powers followed. The second assumption was that British power depended upon her being at the centre of a great empire which covered around a quarter of the world's surface and around a fifth of the world's population the largest empire, indeed, that the world had ever seen. And this empire comprised three parts. The first were the colonies of settlement, such as Australia and Canada and New Zealand, colonies which were either self-governing by 1900 or well on the way to self-government. Then there were the dependent colonies of Africa and Asia. And at that time, in Victorian times, few people, even on the radical left, believed that these dependent colonies would be ready for self-government for a long time, if ever. And most Victorians took the view, or it was a fundamental assumption, that self-government was a principle for white people. And third, there was a vast Indian empire which was sui generis, but which again, most people in Victorian times, however radical, believed would not be ready for self-government for many years. Now, when Churchill became Prime Minister in the post-war period, he was distinctly hostile to giving independence to the Sudan, hostile to removing British troops from Egypt, where they occupied a base in the Suez Canal zone, and of course, he'd been hostile to giving independence to India, Indeed, during the 1930s, he'd run a spectacular but forlorn campaign against the attempt of the national government, supported by the Labour opposition, to give a measure of self-government India. And I think India is probably the only major country in the world where Churchill is not regarded as a hero. There can be no doubt, I think, that Churchill did not appreciate the force of the principle of colonial self-determination, which was to prove so powerful after the Second World War. 
And indeed, his, Churchill's last known political utterance was in 1960, when he had told his private secretary that he disapproved of Harold Macmillan's wind of change speech in South Africa, in which, in this speech, Harold Macmillan spoke of the growing strength of African national consciousness, and Churchill disapproved of giving that recognition. And to that extent, Churchill was at least a child of his time, or rather time in which he grew up, the Victorian era, and it would have been very remarkable if he'd been able to transcend the limitations of his time. But uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, although Britain lay at the centre of this great uh, empire, this worldwide empire, there were already fears that Britain's power was under threat. Partly from the rising empires of the new states, Germany and Japan, the growing strength, so it seemed, of Russia, and also the great industrial power of the United States, which was gradually overtaking Britain. And during Churchill's youth, there were moves led by the unionist politician, conservative in practice, Joseph Chamberlain, to strengthen the empire by adopting a policy of tariff protection within the empire. In other words, that there should be free trade within the empire, but customs duties, a uniform agreed customs duty against countries outside the empire. And that, so many believed, would strengthen Britain against the commercial competition of these new and growing empires and also of the United States. And Joseph Chamberlain took the view that the future lay with great empires and not with little states. A small island, he thought, could not on its own compete, and unless very drastic action were taken, the self-governing empire would rapidly be undermined by the centrifugal tendencies of colonial nationalism. And Joseph Chamberlain is significant, uh, over 100 years ago, as being the first major politician to appreciate that Britain faced possible decline as a world power. Now, it's fascinating to note that Churchill, although himself a strong imperialist, did not agree with this assessment. He did not favour uh, an empire bounded by a tariff. He favoured a more liberal empire, what we would now call a commonwealth, by which the colonies of settlement became independent and retained their independence from Britain, and there was no common commercial policy for the empire. And I think the main reason why Churchill was hostile to this view of empire was that he was a European as well as an imperialist. He did not believe that Britain could be walled off from the rest of the continent. On the contrary, he thought, British security and influence depended not only upon the empire, but upon the balance of power in Europe. Now, those who thought like Joseph Chamberlain tended to the view that Europe was not of fundamental importance for British policy, and that local European squabbles mattered little as long as Britain remained at the heart of a unitary and powerful empire. And it's no coincidence, I think, that 
Joseph Chamberlain's son, Neville, who was Prime Minister from 1937 to 1940, famously spoke of Czechoslovakia as a faraway country of which we know nothing. And that was language that Churchill, I think, would never have used. And indeed, in the 1930s, he took the view that Britain and her empire could not survive as a great power if Europe were to come under the domination of one country, uh, Nazi Germany. When, in the 1930s, it seemed that Hitler was prepared to guarantee the British Empire in return for acceptance of German dominance in Central and Eastern Europe, Churchill said that this, and I quote, would be contrary to the whole of our history, contrary to the whole of our history to forget about the balance of power in Europe. Now, during Churchill's youth, at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, people frequently spoke of the unity of European civilization. And after 1914, that unity came to be destroyed by two totalitarian ideologies, communism and national socialism. And it's taken almost the whole of that 20th century to overcome that tragic division. Churchill, oddly enough, predicted that it would happen. He told his private secretary, Sir John Colville, in 1953, that if he, Colville, lived to his natural span, he would see the end of communism in Europe since the communists would be unable to digest what they had swallowed. Colville died in 1987, just two years before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Now that, I think, is a striking example of Churchill's historical prescience. And speaking at Aachen in Germany when he received the Charlemagne Prize in 1956, Churchill had declared that the unity of Western Europe was desirable, since only then would the states of Eastern Europe regain their independence. And as early as 1949, he'd said at Brussels, the Europe we seek to unite is all Europe. Now, this does not mean that Churchill, when he became prime minister in 1951, was in favor of Britain joining a supranational European organization such as the coal and steel community, a forerunner of the common market, which has now become, in turn, the European Union. He was not in favour of that, or perhaps it might be fairer to say, he was not in favour in the circumstances of the time. He submitted a paper to the Cabinet in the early 1950s saying, I have never thought that Britain should become an integral part of a European federation and have never given the slightest support to the idea. Later on in 1962, towards the end of his life, when he was ill, he was embarrassed, as many people were embarrassed, by a comment made by Field Marshal Lord Montgomery after visiting him. Montgomery visited him on his hospital bed and uh, said to reporters that he was glad that Churchill was recovering and he was also glad to notice that Churchill shared his Eurosceptic views and was hostile to Britain, Britain's application to join the common market. And at that point, Conservative Central Office was worried and asked for some clarification 
of Churchill's views, which Churchill gave. And he said this. In a speech in Zurich in 1946, I argued for the creation of the European family, and I am sometimes given credit for stimulating the ideals of European unity, which led to the formation of the economic and the other two communities. But we have another role which we cannot abdicate, that of leader of the Commonwealth. In my conception, I never contemplated the diminution of the Commonwealth. Now, one of Churchill's colleagues in that peacetime government, Edward Heath, who's, who's just died, said that Churchill's hostility to Britain's involvement with Europe was a matter not of principle, but of circumstance, and that had Churchill appreciated that Britain would not remain an imperial or world power, and that the Commonwealth would not be a power block, he would, like de Gaulle in France, have perceived that Britain's future lay with Europe. But in the early 1950s, he still believed, mistakenly, that the British Empire and Commonwealth could be a powerful and united force in world politics. And possibly, had Churchill not believed that, possibly Britain, whose prestige at the end of the war was enormously high, possibly Britain could have taken the lead in the European movement, as the French were later to do under de Gaulle. But you can take the opposite point of view. You can say that Churchill appreciated that the European project was going too far in trying to secure supranational control over member states, and that it involved too much merging of sovereignty, and that that too would undermine British power. So you could say that Churchill was ahead of his time that he was the first Eurosceptic who's mirrored the movement of the Conservative Party from support for Europe under Harold Macmillan and Edward Heath to Euroscepticism under more recent leaders and perhaps particularly Margaret Thatcher. We actually obviously don't know what his position on Europe would have been if he'd lived beyond the 1960s. All one can say, I think, is at the time of his peacetime premiership, he was uncharacteristically ambivalent about Europe. He actually could not make up his mind, and uh, his normal historical prescience couldn't quite grasp the changes that were occurring. But that, of course, is a speculative question. But there's an even more important factor which prevented Churchill from accepting that Britain's future lay with Europe. And that was his view of Britain's relations with the United States and the so-called special relationship. Uh, we must remember that Churchill's mother was American, as Harold Macmillan's mother was American. And that the years of Churchill's political career, from 1900 to 1955, were also the years when, at least in British eyes, the special relationship was at its closest. And Churchill wasn't the only one to perceive the importance of that. Another historical figure who had uh, almost as great, I think, historical presence as Churchill, uh, Bismarck, the German Chancellor in the 19th century, he said that the most important factor in world politics in the 20th century would be the fact that the Americans spoke English.
And Churchill believed that an alliance between Britain and America, a strong alliance, could have prevented both world wars, and that's an arguable proposition, I think. And he also believed that in the post-Second War years, Second World War years, the alliance between Britain and America was the key to preserving world peace and to preventing a third world war with Stalin's Russia. And Britain, he thought, because of her empire, need not be a merely junior partner in that alliance. Churchill told the French Foreign Ministry in 1949, Britain cannot be thought of as a single state in isolation. She is the founder and centre of a worldwide empire and commonwealth. And Churchill contrasted the firm stance taken by Britain and the United States in the post-war years, when Stalin was possibly well prepared to take the sort of risks to peace that Hitler had taken in the 1930s. He contrasted that with the appeasement policies of the 1930s. But he went even further than that because he hoped for some sort of political union, ill-defined, perhaps, between the British Commonwealth and the United States. He wanted what he called a union of the English-speaking peoples, and I'm afraid by that he didn't mean the peoples of India and Africa. He meant the peoples of Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, and possibly South Africa uh, with the United States. In 1958, after he'd retired from the premiership, he concluded the fourth and final volume of his history book, A History of the English-Speaking Peoples. He concluded with these words, The future is unknowable, but the past should give us hope. Nor should we seek to define precisely the exact terms of ultimate union with America. And this was quite unrealistic, of course. And the Suez Crisis of 1956 one year after Churchill's retirement as Prime Minister, shows that the special relationship with the United States, if it existed at all, was a relationship of superior to subordinate. It could not be a relationship of equals. And the Americans never really took Churchill's idea of a union of English-speaking peoples very seriously. In 1951, shortly after becoming Prime Minister again, Churchill met General Eisenhower in Paris. This was before Eisenhower became President of America and had discussions with Eisenhower. And Eisenhower wrote in his diary, I believe that subconsciously my great friend is trying to relive the days of his greatest glory. To my mind, he simply will not think in terms of today, but only of the war years. And after becoming president, Churchill visited him again. And again, Eisenhower wrote in his diary, Winston is trying to relive the days of World War II. He had developed an almost childlike faith that all of the answers are to be found merely in British-American partnership. In 1954, the year afterwards, uh, the American Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, had talks in London with Churchill and he reported in similar terms to his president. The Prime Minister followed his usual line. He said only the English-speaking peoples counted that together they could rule the world. The, the Americans thought that Churchill was living in the past. Now that is an accusation that has been made about many British Prime Ministers in the post-war era. Against Anthony Eden at the time of Suez, against Harold Macmillan and against Harold Wilson, who as late as 1965, just 40 years ago, 
insisted that Britain was a world power or that she was nothing. And then he said our real frontiers lay on the Himalayas. It's been extraordinary that 40 years ago a British Prime Minister could say that. But perhaps Churchill, with his unique historical insight, had a better chance than any other post-war Prime Minister to have reorientated Britain towards a new role, since in the immediate post-war years our prestige was enormous and the leadership of Europe was ours for the asking if we'd wanted it. Perhaps by 1951, he was simply too old. But the consequence is, or one consequence is, that while the continent seemed to have liberated itself from the past, we in Britain, for too much of the post-war period, seem to have been imprisoned by it. Have we been living for too much of the post-war period in the past? When Churchill had first become Prime Minister in 1940, Britain faced a desperate situation. And Churchill mastered it essentially through an act of will. If you act and convey to others through your speeches the confidence that Britain will win the war, then victory will follow. Similarly, in the post-war years, Churchill seemed to have felt that if Britain still acted and spoke as if she were a great power, then a great power she would remain. And it was for this reason that he was so hostile to surrendering imperial positions in India, the Sudan, and Egypt. Now, Churchill's foreign secretary and successor of the Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, took a different view. He believed that Britain should surrender untenable colonial positions and that the new nationalist regimes in the Middle East and Africa would prove an effective barrier against communism. And he gave a paper to the Churchill cabinet in 1953 in which he said that with our limited resources, it is essential that we should concentrate on the points where our vital strategic needs or the necessities of our economic life are at stake. We have to uh, uh, cut our, our cloth to, to uh, meet our resources, as it were. But that policy, too, seems to have failed at the time of Suez, when one of these nationalist leaders, President Nasser of Egypt, proved as hostile to Britain as Churchill had predicted that he would be. And Anthony Eden, and it's been said at the time of Suez, was the last British Prime Minister to act as if Britain really was still a world power, a great power, and the first Prime Minister to have to face the reality of the fact that she wasn't, that Britain was a power in decline. Churchill's main aim throughout his political career had been to preserve British power in the world. When he became leader of the Conservative Party in 1940, he defined as his central purpose the maintenance of the enduring greatness of Britain and her empire and the historical continuity of our island life. But the central theme of Churchill's political career from 1900 to 1955 was the decline of British power. And you may say the decline was inevitable, but it was decline just the same. And indeed, Churchill's funeral in January 1965, just over 40 years ago, de Gaulle is said to have remarked in a soft voice, now Britain is no longer a great power. In 1900, Britain had been the leading power in the world. 
but she'd been unable to win either world war without the help of the United States and Russia. She could not contain Stalin's Russia after the war without the help of the United States. By 1955, when Churchill was retired, had retired, Britain was number three behind both the United States and the Soviet Union. And perhaps she has been slipping further since. So, judged by the test which Churchill himself laid down, he had failed. And he knew it. He told a political colleague, Lord Boothby, at the end of his life, Historians are apt to judge war ministers less by the victories achieved under their direction than by the political results which flowed from them. Judged by that standard, I am not sure that I shall be held to have done very well. And he said to his private secretary at the end of his life, Anthony Montagu Brown, I have worked very hard all my life, and I have achieved a great deal in the end to achieve nothing. Now, perhaps the British people didn't mind as much about this decline that I've been speaking of. Perhaps they didn't care as much about it as Churchill did. If you look at uh, A.J.P. Taylor's volume in the Oxford History of England, English History 1914-45, he ends with the comment, Imperial greatness was on the way out. The welfare state was on the way in. The British Empire declined. The condition of the people improved. The politicians spoke a great deal about the importance of Britain remaining a great power, of Britain retaining a seat at the top table. Did the British people really care? Churchill thought it was very important that we still ruled India, Egypt, and Sudan. I wonder if there's anyone in the audience today who regrets that we do not. Churchill, in an odd way, recognised this too, telling his private secretary, I could have defended the British Empire against anyone except the British people. But perhaps that isn't the end of the story. Churchill believed that Britain still had something important to offer the world, which the other countries couldn't offer, something that she could offer only if she was strong. And contrary to what is often said about him, he was one of the first to appreciate the threat of British decline. In the first summit conference uh, in the war at Tehran in 1943, he lamented, there I sat, with the great Russian bear on one side of me, with paws outstretched, and on the other side the great American buffalo. And between the two sat the poor little English donkey, who was the only one who knew the right way home. And after the war, he said, it's no good being wise and benevolent if no one listens to you, and if you are not in a position to enforce your will. And Churchill believed the world would be a better place if Britain had more influence in it. Now, was he right? And perhaps there's a nagging feeling among some people that perhaps he was. And I said earlier that Churchill was accused during the 1950s, with some reason, of being out of touch 
of living in the past. But yet he also lies at the heart of a contemporary debate about Britain's role in the world. What sort of power should we aspire to be? Should we aspire to be a power with worldwide influence? Should we try to restore a special relationship with the United States? Could that phrase have any meaning? What should our relationship be with Europe? All these questions are still unsettled. Now I began by suggesting that Churchill was in a sense the most remote of all the post-war Prime Ministers. But there's also a sense in which he's the most contemporary that whatever the answers he gave, he was the one who foresaw the problems that still agitate us today, who posed the questions about Britain's position in the world, and in particular, about Britain's relationship with Europe, which are still relevant today. And Churchill spoke of the historical continuity of our island life, and he tempts us to ask the question, is our past still a source of strength to us, or are we, on the contrary, imprisoned by it? And these are difficult and complex questions which different people will have different answers. But I think the fact that Churchill poses those questions accounts for his enduring fascination, which lasts even today. Thank you. I said at the beginning that every journalist could rely upon Professor Bogdanor to be cogent, witty, well-argued, and occasionally provocative. He was certainly the first three tonight. Not perhaps so much provocative as challenging. And we're all used to the vision of Churchill, the angry old man, born protesting along on a post-imperial tide, resenting every diminution of British grandeur. We're used to the idea of Churchill fighting to retain a place at a top table, pinning totally illusory importance to the Anglo-American relationship. As Eisenhower said, always trying to relive the days of our greatest glory. What I found particularly poignant about what Vernon said was the way in which he was out of touch with the English people. The English people did not particularly want to keep an empire. The English people didn't particularly want to be at the top table. They just wanted to get on with their life in whatever sort of comfort could be assured them. So Churchill was out of touch in the same way as perhaps Churchill had been out of touch with the English people in 1938, who for the most part did not want to go to war until it was proved beyond all doubt that it was something that had to happen. So in a sense, Churchill was right when he said he was a failure. In a sense, as Vernon has argued, he was wrong 
because he was prescient in a way which perhaps the British people had not always been. I certainly, I found, I'm quite certain you found tonight's talk enormously involving, enormously challenging, and certainly one which I'm going to have to go back and rethink my views about the post-war Churchill and reread some of the sources. And I'm very grateful to Professor Bogdanov for having rekindled my interest in that way. Thank you very much indeed. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.